Good to be back. We have a short scripture reading taken this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Brian and I decided that we would do uh, a short series here at the beginning of the year in Ephesians as we look at the church and kind of kick off the new year with that focus in mind. So 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord then, uh, as a prisoner for the Lord, he's still in jail (laughs) again. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, be completely gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many of us walked into the sanctuary this morning feeling good about ourselves spiritually? Yeah, um, I suspect very few. Because January is not the month for spiritual thriving <laughs> or physical thriving. I mean, we, we've been cooped up inside binge-watching Netflix at my house for the last, I think we've watched 15 uh, Agatha Christie Poirot episodes in the last couple of weeks. Uh, January is so hard. You don't, you're eating too many calories, you still have a hangover from from the holidays, and you're not exercising, you're not getting out enough. Um, It's a hard time spiritually. And then you come to a passage like this in verses 1 and 2, turn your attention back to verse 2 real quick. I mean, I I just gulp when I read this. Verse 2, how are you doing? uh, How do you grade yourself out on being completely humble and gentle or or being completely patient? Some of us parents, we've experienced at least six snow days (laughs) recently. You know, how are you doing with with the kids in the house after Christmas break and six snow days? Um, Be completely patient. Uh, It's not happening. Um, Or in verse 1, I mean, how many of us would say that we are living a life worthy of the calling that we have received? Uh, The list, when you you analyze yourself individually, uh, can be rather depressing. But here's what I want you to think about. Um, They did an experiment, a test, between two bicyclists. One of them was a professional world champion, you know, grade A cyclist. The other was a pretty decent amateur. Um, and they, they stuck them on an oval, and they just said, we're going to race and do one lap around the oval, and we're going to see who wins the race. But there's a catch, of course. The catch is that they give to the, to the amateur cyclist a $15,000 know, state-of-the-art, right out of the, the, the wind tunnel aerodynamic you know, the best bike that you could have out there, $15,000. And to the professional cyclists, they give them a $75 bike from Walmart. Who's going to win? You start them on opposite sides of the track, just one lap, who's, who's going to win? And how much of a difference is the bicycle going to make? The answer is it made quite a bit of difference, but not enough difference, because the guy who, who, who you know, the professional... He's that great. He's, he's so great. And his greatness is actually, uh, it's made even greater 
by the fact that he can win a race on a $50 bike. And I'd say this is a silly example, but it's equally true. If, if you see a guy who wins the, the stage in the Tour de France, he's bicycling across the finish line um, with a bike that has a wicker basket on the front and you know, a little bell on the handlebars and baseball cards in the spokes, and he rides triumphantly across the finish line, you say, man, that is some cyclist. He's, he's, he's great. And there you have a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. I mean, because we are individually, you know, like $50 bikes with flat tires. And when you, when you assess us according to you know, verses 1 and 2, we look and feel rather pathetic and lame. But nevertheless, what I see, I just wonder if God doesn't want us to evaluate ourselves individualistically in this passage, but corporately. Because when I see this church as a body, I, I really think that, that this stuff is happening. And if you were a fly on the wall, let's say at Boise State University for a Reformed University Fellowship large group, I really think that you would see um, people who are being humble and gentle and bearing with one another in patient love. I really think if you were to go to one of the community groups in our church, you would really see these things happening on, on a corporate level. So I, you know, knowing that you probably came in here rather thin this morning, I want to encourage you. Um, maybe it's a case of just the pastor looking at his church through rose-colored glasses, but I really think, I see Jesus Christ, um, to press the analogy too far, riding really poor bicycles, um, one, maybe one big poor bicycle, and when he does that and he wins triumphantly, he gets all of the glory, does he not? Yeah, Amen. With that in mind, I want to focus the lion's share of the rest of my attention on verse 3, where we read, if you want to look at your passage again, verse 3, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How can we um, continue to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, both locally as a congregation and then among the churches of the Treasure Valley? I have three, three ideas. Number one, Number one, strive to have conversations with other Christians that focus on your common, your common bonds. Strive to have conversations with other Christians that focus on your common bonds. Pope Francis is not my favorite pope, but he said something last year in, in an interview with an Italian journalist that I thought was very profound, and I agreed with very much. He said this. He said that in the Middle East today, when they kill Christians, they do not ask them, are you an Anglican or are you a Lutheran? In the Middle East today, when they, they kill Christians, they do so for wearing a cross. They do so for having a Bible. But they do not ask them before they kill them, are you a Catholic or you are, are you Orthodox? Because to those who kill us, we are Christians. And here it is. Even though we have not yet managed to be united in denominations, we are united in blood. And our blood is... Is mixed together. We are bonded by blood. To that, to this, I would add, we are bonded by this sevenfold unity that I just read to you from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Don't know if you counted it as I was reading, but there are seven things, you know, seven, the, the biblical number, the number of God 
Paul picks out seven things that we share together as Christians. We have one Lord. There's only one. We have one common faith as articulated in the Apostles of the Nicene Creed. Everybody comes into the church through one baptism. Um, We have one God and Father overall. We have one spirit. We have one body. And we have one hope. What I would say to you is is it's critically important for us when we're talking with other Christians to talk about these things, to talk about our bonds, to have Jesus conversations with other Christians. You have to graduate and, and talk about something more significant than just the weather or just football. You need to have Jesus-centered conversations because that's, that's our bond. You know, I'm a 41-year-old college-educated white father from the suburbs of Boise. But if you put me together with a 17-year-old Latino woman from a rural area who's a mother of four and a day laborer, and you give us 15 minutes to talk about Jesus, I guarantee you that she and I, we have a bond. And it doesn't matter if she's a Democrat and I'm an independent or a libertarian or, or what. It, it, it doesn't matter because this bond, this bond is a reality that God has given us. The sevenfold unity that's described here, it's not wishful thinking. It's not pie in the sky. We hope that we're unified. No, no, no. God has given us this. and It's an already established fact. Then that begs the, the question. That's um, a fair question. Why do we have so many denominations if we are sevenfold unified in Christ and we have the unity of the blood bond? Why do we have so many denominations? I heard somebody say the other day that there are 33,000 different denominations in the world today. And actually, that's wrong. There are only 9,000 <laughs> denominations, which is still awfully pathetic. Um, you know, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, and yet I'd be the first person to tell you that I, I lament that we have the denominations that we do. It, I lament it. I, I think denominations are, are, are a pitiful, shameful um, rending of the, the unity we have as Christians, and yet I don't know what, it, what we can do about it because... If you go out and be non-denominational, that doesn't fix things. Arguably, if you just go out and start your own denomination, then, you know, you, you fractured the body into even more atomistic pieces than it was to begin with. Um, so I'm in a denomination. I hate denominations in, in a certain sense. What can we do? Uh, what can we do to, uh, to practically promote our unity in Christ. Well, there's a few things that we already do that you may, um, you may not even be aware of that we do here at All Saints. Uh, we accept baptisms from all the diff- different Christian denominations. If you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're going to accept that baptism from other denominations. We're going to invite Christians of all, all across the denominational spectrum to share in the Lord's Supper. You know how I say, you know, it's not a Presbyterian table, it's a Christian table. We do that. When ministers come to our denomination from other places, we don't reordain them. We, we accept their ordination as valid. And one of the other things that we do, if you've been at All Saints for any length of time, you know that we intention, we're very intentional about not, not talking bad about other Christian 
denominations and traditions. You never hear me get up and define us over and against. You never hear me say anything like, well, we're not, we're not like the pursuit. We're not like Rev 22. No, because those are our brothers and sisters. They're not our enemies. They're, they're our brothers and sisters and friends. Whatever we can do to verbally present our unity in Christ, whatever incremental steps that we can take, I think Jesus is very pleased with that. Um, and so that's number one. That's why we strive to have conversations with other Christians which focus on our common bonds. Number two, we pray for unity. Just like Jesus said, I, I pray that they may be one just as you, my, you uh, my father, you and I are one. We pray for unity and we believe that the current state of things will not last. I know that people say that the church will never be visibly united until Jesus comes back again. You've heard that before. Um, we, we have an invisible unity. The sevenfold unity that's described in Ephesians chapter 4 is a spiritual unity that exists. But we will never be, never be visibly unified or structurally unified. And maybe you're right, but... Before you reach that conclusion too strongly, I want you just to stop for a half a second and consider just how much Christianity has changed. The, the Christian landscape has changed over the last 2,000 years because there have been tectonic shifts in, in Christianity uh, about every 500 years. I'll give you a very quick history lesson to begin. Um, how the church start out? Starts out... As a, as a little persecuted minority sect whose existence is very tenuous. And for the first 300 years of its life, you know, the church is, is little and persecuted. But all of a sudden, what happens in the fourth century? Constantine comes, and bam, the church becomes, it's no longer illegal, it's legal. And it's given most favored religion status. And that completely changes the landscape. It changes Christianity as it had never been seen before. All right, then for the next 300 years, Christianity makes deep inroads into northern Africa and into the Middle East until what happens next? Bam, Islam comes. And we lose our entire foothold in Africa and the Middle East. We retreat back to Europe and medieval Christendom takes place for the next... Completely different than it was up until that point. What happens next? Well, you get to uh, the year, what, 10, 1054 it was. Up until 1054, you have the Eastern Church and the Western Church. They're largely united. But all of a sudden, we get this, this crazy, dumb theological debate on whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, or does He only proceed from the Father? And bam, you have this split between the East and the West that exists still today, the Catholic and the Orthodox, completely changes the landscape, yes? Then you go another 500 years into the days of the Reformation. And up until that point, the Western Church had been largely unified, but then comes the Reformation, and we've got Protestant Catholics. Notice that each 500 years produces a tectonic shift in the church, and that is happening still today. The, the church is, is radically changing in ways that, that you and I, living as we do in Idaho, can hardly appreciate. In the year 1901, 
There were less than one million Pentecostal Christians in the world in 1901. Anybody have an idea how many Pentecostal Christians are expected to be in the world by 2050? One billion. From one million to one billion. And here's my point. Why would we think that the current Christian landscape of disunity is a permanent one? We have no reason to assume this. We have every reason to assume the opposite, to expect that sometime, somewhere, somehow, God will shake and reconfigure the church yet again. I believe that he will do that. And I believe that we are not, we are not to expect that things will always remain as denominationally fractured as they are. Uh, one day we are going to have a real, visible, actual, structural, existent unity sometime in the future, and we're supposed to pray for the future today. When was the last time that you spent time really praying for the unity of the church in the world today? We, we pray for the future now, and we start living the future now. So that's number two. Number three, and last point And it may sound somewhat underwhelming, but most of what we can do for Christian unity just takes place in these four walls. It's it's what we do in um, genuine relationships in the local church. The whole mantra, think globally, act locally. Uh, Yeah, It's, it's actually having genuine relationships with the people in this room. with, given all of our differences and all of our preferences, and, um, letting those, setting those aside, I've said this before, practically speaking, what is unity? Unity is a 20-something single guy with an arm sleeve of tats and piercings and an 80-year-old white grandma and an adopted African child of seven years old, sharing the Lord's Supper together, then going downstairs after the worship service and having a fellowship meal together, eating and talking to one another. That's, that's unity. What is unity? Unity, I've used this one before too, is a mom who isn't a fan of public education and a mom who sends her kids to the local public school and is on the PTA and a mom who leads a homeschool co-op happily getting into each other's lives in a Bible study with no petty hostilities and no animosities, but loving and accepting each other as sisters in Christ. And the reason we have got to do this is because the triune God lives inside of you. We don't say that God is inside of you. No, this is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of three persons with one being, A community where there's perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect communication, perfect oneness. Um, If you want this divine life to grow inside of you and to grow into maturity, you would think that if the triune God is living inside of you, then you are going to naturally pursue community with other Christians. Um, It means you can't just drop into church every once in a while and really expect triune life to continue to to grow and blossom inside. It just doesn't work that way. It means something else for those of us who are invested deeply in community. It means that we cannot get on the outs with other people. Um, Do you realize just how outrageous and inappropriate it is to have the life of the Trinity inside of you, and yet there are some people, (laughs) some people that you avoid because you're kind of on the outs with them. How dare we do that? 
when ours is a triune God. St. John Chrysostom in the 4th century wrote this to his congregation. He said, watch your tongues, guard your mouths. When we use, quote, when we use our words to condemn and criticize, what profit is it for us to claim to be disciples of the Lord and yet secretly or publicly tear down others in the body of Christ? What profit is that? It is. It is grieving to read and see the ways Christian brothers and sisters condemn others in the body of Christ. But I can assure you that it grieves the Holy Spirit of God so much more, he says. We would change our actions and our words ever so quickly if we were were able to see the reaction of our words on the face of Jesus. We would change our words and actions if we could see the reaction in the face of Jesus as we speak so quickly cruelly and critically about his body. Finally, um, at the end of 2016, what we normally do, uh, we reflect on the previous year. We think it's very common for us to think of, uh, to look back on the celebrities who died in the, in, you know, the, the last 365 days. Uh, who died this past year? Well, uh, the list includes legendary musicians like David Bowie and Prince, Movie stars like Alan Rickman, Carrie Fisher recently, Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest, the greatest died. NPR did a segment recently on why do people take celebrity deaths so hard? Because you know what happens on social media when a celebrity dies. I mean, social media blows up and everybody is absolutely heartbroken and devastated. So the NPR segment is, why do we take it so hard? And the answer they came up with is, is that strange as it may sound, we, we develop an emotional attachment with fictional characters. Um, the guy in, they interviewed, he said, quote, after watching dozens of episodes of Friends, I felt as if I knew the personas in the show more intimately than I do real people. In fact... There are times when I have seen the characters on Friends more than I've seen the people in my own family. (laughs) We develop uh, an emotional attachment and dependence on characters. And the reason psychologists call this belongingness, belongingness theory, the deep primordial desire in every human to be attached to someone else. And, of course, that now it's so much easier to do that with because of social media, with celebrities or fictional characters or performers. It's much easier to attach to a fictional person than it is to a real person, of course. Because the the fictional person is always available on your time. All you have to do is is click play. Um, They're always predictable. You know, characters, they stay within their persona for the most part. They're never going to sin against you. You already share a common interest. Um, The real relationships, of course, are so much harder and take a tremendous amount of energy. But I'll conclude here. My plea is with those of you who don't have any real relationships within this church. Would you change that? Would you change that for 2017? I genuinely don't believe that, that you... You can really grow as a Christian without having uh, decision-altering friendships. Ever heard that one before? Decision, 
What is a decision-altering friendship? It's a friendship where somebody could say something to you that would actually change the course of, uh, of uh, you know, a path that you... I don't know that that can happen without having other Christians. I plead to you um, not to use the excuse that, well, I'm in college right now. This is not a good time in life. Or I'm single right now. No, if, if the life of the triune God is, is in you, that growth is going to come from unity and community. Um, this means that you have to let yourself be known by other people. This means that you have to make yourself vulnerable to other people, which is very dangerous. This means that you have to be inconvenienced by other people. And it means that you have to pursue the very difficult work of conflict resolution. When somebody you know, hurts you, sins against you, instead of just saying, ah, let, let it, no, no, you, you go to them, and none of us want to pursue conflict resolution, but it's critical that we do. Yes, we are like cheap bikes with flat tires, but I'm excited to be a part of a church where, where Jesus is doing something good among us. I'm very excited to be a part of a church where people are interested in, in cultivating trust, commitment, um, knowledge, you know, and when that happens, when, when Jesus is seen to cross the finish line triumphantly um, using, you know, flat, tired bikes like us, then everybody's going to say, man, is he good. And he gets all of the glory. Let, that, let it be in 2017. Amen.